Hello and welcome back to series two of Rosetta Stone's More Than Words podcast, in which we talk to fascinating people and experts in the field of language and linguistics to answer your most pressing questions about learning another language. My name is Alex Rawlings, and I was named Britain's most multilingual student in 2012, and I'll be your guide for this series, providing some tips that I've picked up on my way to fluency in 12 different languages. Today's episode is all about accents and pronunciation. What can an accent reveal about our identity? To what extent do we need to worry about our accent when we learn another language? And how can we improve our accent? Here to help us answer these questions are two experts on accents and phonology. Dr. Will Barris, a lecturer in linguistics at the University of Aberdeen, whose specialties lie across dialectology and phonological theory, and Luke Nicholson, founder of the business Improve Your Accent, who has helped people from over 85 countries improve their English. Now, we probably could have spoken about this subject all day, and I don't think I've ever met two people with such a passion for it. So please do get involved with the exercises from Luke as we go through. And as ever, I'll be summarising everything for you at the end. Enjoy. Welcome, both of you. Uh, Really nice to have you here with us today. Um, I suppose, really, I mean, as a native English speaker myself, I think my accent and other people's accents and what that means and the way we speak has been something that's always been on, on my mind from, from a very, very young age. Maybe the first time I watched Biker Grove and realised that Geordie existed. Um, but I'd really be interested in hearing about how you both got involved in this fascinating topic of accents. Maybe we could start with you, Will. Where did your passion for phonetics come from? Well, actually, um, the early part of my career, I, was, uh, I trained as a, an English teacher. So I was in, in the classroom teaching secondary school kids um, the school subject of English, which, of course, is quite a lot of kind of poetry and plays and novels. It's also bits and pieces of uh, English language. Um, and as you say, um, thinking about how language works and what language sounds like is just something that everybody does all the time without necessarily being kind of consciously aware of it. It's, it's always there. You kind of um, have a picture of what kind of person you're speaking to kind of based on what they sound like. Um, and so during my uh, school teaching career, I was obviously quite, quite focused on the language side of English as a school subject. Um, and then um, having done that for sort of six years, I decided that I really wanted to go back to university and, um, and dig into it in more depth. So I was really fortunate to be able to go and do a master's and then go on to um, PhD research. Um, And in my case, I was very much looking at kind of regional accent variation, mostly in the northwest of England to start with, because that's that's actually where I'm from originally. So I was looking at speech in parts of Greater Manchester and um, Lancashire as well. Um, And as I say, I was kind of fortunate enough to be able to have the opportunity to to kind of investigate something that I was already really interested in. The northwest of England, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the most diverse regions of the world when it comes to accents, right? I mean, there's so many different accents that just vary if you go a few miles down the road. I mean, I remember um, I had an ex from Bolton who always used to say that, oh, those people from Bury, those people are from, you know, <laughs> Oldham. And it was just kind of like, wow, you really can pinpoint people by the postcode by how they pronounce a word or what they call a piece of bread. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it's really, it's really interesting that those are the, the, the towns that you picked out there, because um, my, my master's work was in Bolton, my PhD work was indeed in Bury and Ramsbottom and these East Lancashire towns. Um, and you're right that there's um, in common actually with quite a lot of 
the British Isles and parts of uh, parts of the UK, um, we have a lot of diversity in quite a small geographical space. So, you know, everybody knows that, say, Liverpool and Manchester, you know, they're only sort of 30 miles apart. And yet people can definitely distinguish a very noticeable Scouse accent from a typical kind of Manc accent. Um, and so it's an interesting picture because although in the kind of wider world, people sometimes say that local accents might be on the way to kind of disappearing or all kind of merging together. Actually, what we know from kind of our own experience and popular culture and everything else is that there are still a lot of very significant and, and interesting differences in, uh, in regional accents. So Luke, maybe you could tell us a bit about you. I mean, you are the founder of the business Improve Your Accent, where I take it you spend a lot of your time helping people um, to achieve the accents that they want in their language that they're speaking, which I guess in this case is English. Um, where did your passion for helping people with the way they pronounce their language come from? I think I've always been interested in the way people speak. I remember being hooked on impressionist programmes, comedy programmes when I was much younger with Alistair McGowan, Rory Bremner and and the like. Um, I also have a distinct memory one time trying to work out the difference between a P and a B. It suddenly occurred to me, well, what is the difference? Because they are reasonably similar. And uh, why my mum said foolish, but I said foolish. Um, why are we using different vowels? Um, and I also did a lot of drama growing up. I was always in plays and I studied languages, but languages was always on the back burner. It was something that I did and I enjoyed, but I never thought I'd make a career out of. And I actually went on to university and studied languages there. And after then, uh, at that point, I went to drama school. And it was only really after drama school that I fully discovered the discipline of phonetics. And I couldn't really believe that I'd got so far in life studying languages at university and then at drama school without really being properly introduced to this field. Um, and then I bought every single phonetics book that has ever existed, I think, uh, and uh, read them all, devoured them and got really interested. And um, I then did the, um, the, the IPA exam at UCL and um, I now teach at the summer course in English phonetics there and lecture on it. And that was my first real experience of meeting other people really excited about phonetics, because it's not often that you get to meet people who are not only aware of this field, but have a passion for it and are knowledgeable about it. Um, yes, I, I always get very excited talking about phonetics. I just want to take a moment to let our More Than Words listeners know that to help apply the tips that you're learning with us, Rosetta Stone has a special offer for all podcast listeners, arming you with everything you need to start learning on the go. Simply go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast where you'll receive a special offer on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription, which gives you access to all languages for life. The link is in the episode description, so just click through from there to start your own language learning journey today. So in Improve Your Accent, what kind of work are you doing with people? I mean, is, is it the kind of thing that, that someone like me might be interested in? Uh, I teach non-native English speakers how to communicate more clearly and more confidently in English. Um, so this means being better understood. So usually my clients are not very well understood when they say, for example, their company's name or what their 
what their company sells, which can lead to lots of problems. Um, and really, it's it's reasonably simple to teach someone how to make a particular sound to make them more comprehensible. Um, so yes, my my work really is about accent modification or ac accent acquisition. What we're doing is changing a few sounds so that somebody is more comprehensible when they speak in English. So really, where does that fall in the line between accent and the other thing that we talk about, which is pronunciation? I always love the word pronunciation because it seems it's one of those words very few people are sure about how to pronounce. Is it pronunciation? <laughs> is it pronunciation? Um, you know, how, how would you make that distinction, uh, Will? Right. Well, I think what I'd uh, what would be quite useful is to take an example, kind of from English, perhaps, um, and then obviously this can you can flip this round and think about learning other languages as well. Um, and I think this ties into what Luke was saying about the need for um, clarity and communication and being able to kind of get your message across. So it's possible to make lots and lots of different speech sounds. Um, if we think about vowels, for instance, um, when you learn, when you go to school and you learn to read and write, you tend to think, oh, there are five vowels because there are five vowel letters. But of course, in reality, there are lots and lots of vowel sounds. Um, and you can hear a difference between them. So just to take two kind of at random in English, if we think about the difference between an i vowel and an a vowel, okay, you can hear a difference. Um, that's fair enough, but you can also use those different vowels to actually make different words in order to communicate different ideas. So if I were to say something like, oh, I got really fat during the lockdown, you know, I was just binge watching TV and eating chocolates, you know, that's obviously has a particular meaning. If though I took a different vowel and put it between the, the same consonants of fit and ter. And I said, I got really fit during lockdown. I ran a 5K every day and so on. I'm obviously expressing a, a really different concept there, kind of diametrically opposite con concept. Um, and the way I'm making those two different words is by changing one vowel sound for another vowel sound. So we can say that the I and the A vowel sounds in English um, are actually quite significantly different. They contrast with each other. Um, you can make different words using them. And, and I think that's so far kind of so obvious, you know, you have different sounds and you can make different words and that's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, but if I took another sound, another vowel sound, so let's have the A vowel sound. So the, the sound I would have is something like face or place, that kind of thing. Now, we were having our, uh, our meeting just now, kind of the online meetings that everybody has. If I rock up to the meeting and I say, sorry, I'm late, you know, my internet was buffering and couldn't get connected, then that's fine. I've communicated my message and that's, that's all right. When I'm saying that A vowel sound in the middle of a word like late, if you're listening really carefully, you can hear that it, it, it sort of changes a little bit during the time that I'm saying it. It starts a bit like E and it finishes a bit like E and it kind of glides between the two. So I'm saying kind of A, if I really slow it down, you can kind of hear that. Um, so we call that a diphthong, basically kind of two sounds that kind of glide from one to the other, but function as a single, a single unit, right, to make a word. If I say the same sentence, but I came into the meeting and I said, oh, I'm sorry I'm late, 
you know, my internet wasn't working and couldn't get connected. Um, now, late and late, it's the same word. You know, it's not making a different meaning. It's not uh, having that contrast and kind of communicating a different idea. However, as a listener, as the person on the other end of the conversation, you might straight away have some ideas. You might think, oh, this person maybe comes from the north of England. Maybe they come from Yorkshire or something, because you might be quite aware of the kind of sociolinguistic meanings of different sounds, even if they don't have uh, the function of constructing different words. So I guess if we're trying to draw a distinction between accent variation and pronunciation in the way that you might think about it, if you're learning another language, probably with pronunciation, you're kind of thinking about making sure that, that the person hears the word you're trying to say. Okay, so you're not inadvertently talking about something completely different, like the difference between fit and fat. But accent variation, um, we're not really talking about making different words, we're just talking about subtly different speech sounds, um, which might in turn kind of trigger sociolinguistic judgments or kind of attitude judgments, but don't, don't get in the way of communication in the same way that mixing up sounds which which are actually kind of significantly different from each other would do. Because really, I mean, when we talk about accents, you know, and we talk about pronunciation, I think as we've already circled around a little bit, what we're really talking about here is a kind of identity, right? I mean, your, your accent, as far as I see it, is a bit like how you get dressed in the morning. It's how you want people to see you, but in the case of accents, it's how you want people to hear you. Right, Luke? Uh, yes, uh, although that might be subconscious, it might not be a conscious decision that you are speaking in a certain way in order to project an identity to others. Uh, but of course, the way that somebody speaks does project this. Um, as well said before, there's variation in vowel sounds and we pick up on that. Um, although we wouldn't pick up on that necessarily in a foreign language. So we're very attuned to how people speak in our native language, but we aren't necessarily getting those nuances in other languages. But of course, if we're not attuned to what those differences are in other languages, we can probably guess that people who are native speakers of those languages are very attuned to those differences when we speak them, right? Which is why I suppose they'd come to a service like yours about improving their accent. Yes, that's true. Um, so it's helpful to have a teacher who is aware of certain prejudices or associations and can inform the students, um, you know, these are the sounds you're learning and this is what it might project. It might say that you are from the south of England or from the north of England. And having that information empowers a learner. Um, it's really helpful, um, especially if, for example, let's say that you are a French person moving to Liverpool. Well, perhaps you want to integrate into the local community and you're spending all your time in Liverpool. Well, maybe it's helpful to learn more of a Liverpudlian accent, a Scouse accent, rather than one from the south of England, which actually might be seen as uh, negative if you speak like that in Liverpool. Well, um, I was once in Hungary training to become an English teacher at a very early stage of my career. And while I was there, I met uh, an English teacher from Romania who had never been to the UK in his entire life. His first time outside of Romania, I think, was going to Hungary to do that course. But he spoke absolutely flawless English, exactly like the Queen. Uh, and I sort of had these images of him one day coming to England and speaking this English and, and sort of 
being horrified by the way people <laughs> not only would speak, but may also would receive him. Why is it that kind of accents and pronunciation often come with so much baggage? In the case of varieties of English in England, there's this idea that what you might call the Queen's English or BBC English or received pronunciation, these are all quite quite kind of old-fashioned labels for a sort of standard Southern British English accent. You might have this idea that, you know, if you sound like that, everybody will, will think you're great and will respect you and think that you're, you know, very clever and very, and everything else, all these positive things. But as Luke alluded to there, um, that can be quite, quite different depending on the community that you're, you're speaking to. So if you sound for sake of argument, you know, like you like you went to Eton and you have a very kind of received pronunciation accent and your job is working in Liverpool, for instance, um, you might find that that has quite a kind of distancing effect um, because we can talk about a, a kind of hierarchy of sort of um, esteem or respect, but you've also got the notion of kind of solidarity. And if you... Um, adapt your speech to sound more like the community of people that you're you're engaging with that can be a way of kind of showing that you fit in and that you're 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 one of the community as it were um so kind of kind of quite an interesting example i guess is if you uh, if you think about um footballers who often get kind of you know especially international footballers get you know bought and sold by different football clubs um Footballers who may be Spanish or French or whatever, but have had a long career at somewhere like Manchester United or indeed, or indeed Liverpool or whatever, um, often when they're speaking English, which of course for them is a second language, they sound quite Mancunian or quite Liverpudlian or whatever, because that's the language of the training pitch and being one of the team and the way that they speak in order to kind of engage with the fans and everything. So there's a notion that there might actually be um, quite appropriate ways of varying your accent. And it's not to do with uh, notions of sort of sounding correct or sounding standard. It's more to do with um, building a kind of uh, solidarity and a relationship people that you're you're listening uh, that, that are listening to you you're speaking to Luke are there any kind of particular sounds um that people should look out for when it comes to their accent I mean I ask you because one of the, one of the ones that always comes to mind is the o sound in English which uh, we all pronounce very differently and I know if you open any English language textbook in the world it will tell you that you have to pronounce it o but um I don't I definitely don't say go I say go uh, with much more of a sort of closed sound, yet I'm considered to be a kind of speaker of standard English. Um, so are there any, any sort of sounds like that? And also, of course, sounds that I suppose exist in English that maybe aren't so common in other languages, like the TH sound and the English R? Yes. Um, so as we said before, it's important to learn sounds that change meanings of words, because those are the things that are going to help you become more comprehensible. And some of those sounds might be the, the O that you mentioned. And a, way, a useful way of referring to these different vowels is using something called lexical sets. So we talk about a set of words that all contain the same vowel sound. So that O vowel we can call the goat vowel. 
the O vowel, if it's an or an O sound, depending on how you pronounce it, we can call it the goat vowel. And most native English speakers make a distinction between that vowel in goat and that vowel in lot, an O type vowel. So regardless of how you actually pronounce those vowels, we keep those categories separate in order to distinguish words. Like for example, um, I'm trying to think of one now, um, cod and code for example, right? So we're making that distinction. So as a speaker of another language, it's important to realize we have these categories and it's important to keep these vowel categories different. But of course, this is, this is a really big marker of accent, not only where you come from, but also communicating those sounds. I wonder where all these kind of um, variations in accents, not just within language, but also between language come from. What, what, what kinds of factors can affect the way that someone um, would pronounce a certain letter? Well, I mean, to an extent, we're talking about um, the evolution of language over, you know, over like centuries and millennia. Um, so one thing, if you think about kind of European languages, many European languages are related. If you go back far enough, you've got kind of common ancestor languages that were, were spoken. So um, if you think about English, for instance, there are quite a lot of connections in present day English to present day Dutch and present day German, all of these kind of Northern European Germanic languages. Um, sometimes it can be particular words and you, you see a word in Dutch and you think, oh, almost the same as English, right? So there are those kinds of connections. Um, and it can also be to do with particular patterns in, in sound as well, pronunciation. Um, the complicating thing about English is that because of the history of basically the UK now, um, there's also a lot of influence from Romance languages. So particularly kind of, you know, French, if you think back to the Norman conquest and so on. Um, so the one of the reasons that English is so irregular and actually so difficult to learn for speakers of other languages sometimes is that um, because of that kind of very mixed history you end up with a system where the spelling you know is all over the place it's very irregular and you can have a single uh, letter on the page that can maybe sound you know five or six different ways depending which word it's in um, and that's very much to do with kind of the, the history the historical development there um, I mean, the same thing is true for um, accent variation within a language, um, because if you think again, if you think back historically, people were much more kind of localized. So you might have generation after generation of people who kind of grew up and lived in the same small village. Transport was very difficult. You know, you might possibly go and, and speak to people in the next village along, but you probably weren't traveling big distances and you certainly weren't kind of traveling internationally. Um, and so over many, many generations, you can get these differences emerging. I mean, that's why um, somewhere like the British Isles, where people have been speaking English in the same place for all these generations after generations, you know, you've got these traditional accent variants. Whereas maybe, again, if you think about the United States, of course, English was brought to the United States by by emigrants and then um, you have you have this situation where you have a different kind of melting pot that's happening very quickly and you've got people also German speakers and, and Spanish speakers and everything else and you, you have a kind of different traje trajectory for the development of uh, American dialects of English.
Mm-hmm. We're very aware of all of the dialects and accents and differences that exist in a country like the UK, a country like the USA. And as I said, we see similar things happening in the Netherlands and Germany and Switzerland and Austria and places like that. But there are also countries where we don't see that much diversity in the way people speak. I mean, Russia, for example, is a very is an interesting country to think about, one of the largest countries in the world. And while there are kind of stereotypical ways that people from Moscow might pronounce certain words, generally there's not a lot of difference between the way someone speaks in St. Petersburg, right over in the West next to Finland, and in Vladivostok, all over in the Far East, nestled between China, North Korea, and Japan. And then again, when we have a country like Israel, for example, which speaks Hebrew, which of course is a revived language, which was extinct until the late 19th century, and now is the first language of nearly 6 million people. Yet in Israel, we see hardly any dialectical variation at all. Why is it that some countries seem to have so much diversity when it comes to accent, whereas others don't? Uh, well, it, it depends on on how long the population has been speaking. Um, so if, if they haven't been in that area very long, then there's not much time for variation to develop. Um, it depends on how big the population is. Um, and in um, if a, a government has exercised quite a lot of control over its population, uh, it might do so by moving the population around a lot. And if that happens, then there's less chance for variation to develop because people need to keep communicating with these outsiders who've come from all the way the, the other side of Russia, for example. Um, and the media exerts you know, a strong influence as we've seen in the UK, uh, the BBC was most people on the BBC were expected to have an, a received pronunciation accent uh, for quite a long time. And so this is why we have this, this idea that this is the correct way of speaking or this is how authoritative voices should sound. Uh, and that's starting to change, which is great. Um, but yes, yeah, so it can be to do with the media. It can be do, to do with how the government controls its population and how long um, a population has, has been speaking in that particular place. And as Will said, in in places where you can't travel around a lot, for example, mountainous areas, you're going to find a lot more variation. Mm-hmm. Now, thinking about foreign languages as well, um, my experience of learning foreign languages has been kind of divided between what we could say are big languages, big world languages like Spanish and French and things like that, and maybe smaller languages like, let's say, Dutch, Afrikaans, Hungarian, Serbian, and of course, my second mother tongue, Greek. And now what I found is that in languages like Spanish and French and to some extent German, although not always, people tend to be much more tolerant of hearing a foreign accent when they speak, which I've always assumed just comes down to the fact that there are just more people to speak that language. But in the Netherlands, for example, if you speak Dutch with a very audible foreign accent, an experience that I've had and many other learners have had is that it's very hard to get people to reply to you in anything other than English. do you think, therefore, that we really, is, is accent something that we do need to think about? Do we really need to think about polishing ourselves up to sound more native? Or should we, should we be proud of our accents and should we sort of wear them, you know, as, as, as signs of identity and who we are? Well, I, I think the, the, we've touched on identity and how important that is. I think on the flip side, there is something to say about it being fun to uh, produce sounds that you're not used to producing. And it can be really fun to realize that the other person has understood those sounds that you're making that don't exist in your native language. Um, And of course, not just the sounds, but 
the overall feel of, of your voice. Something that's uh, talked about in pronunciation teaching is the concept of articulatory settings or voice quality. There are different names for it, but it's, it's a really interesting concept about how that you hold your, your articulators, the bits that, that make sounds or what muscles and parts of your mouth you might add a bit of tension to, to create a particular quality to your voice. Um, you might feel that um, for example, uh, you might feel that certain accents are spoken in a certain part of your mouth and other accents are spoken further back in your mouth or languages. You might feel that you want to round your lips more when you're speaking one language and you want to spread them more when you're speaking another language. And that helps you get into a zone and therefore communicate more easily with the, the person you're talking to. Um, so getting into this zone by, by moving your muscles and, and feeling something different can really help um, speak another language. And um, Sophie Scott from UCL has done some MRI scans of brains of impressionists and actors doing different accents and working out what bits of the brain are lighting up. And when they put an impressionist in there and they were doing an accent that wasn't their native accent, bits of the brain that control uh, visual stuff and moving lit up and not just moving bits of the mouth. And this kind of shows you that when you do a different accent, actually you might be, you might be using other things apart from just your mouth. To get into that zone of speaking another language, you might be feeling that this language is um, smoother or more staccato or you might feel it's, it's more blue or more red. Um, and these things aren't necessarily academic stuff that we can write down and, and tell students because it's, it's a very personal thing. It's, it's metaphor, it's, it's, a, it's something you respond to personally, um, but it can be something really helpful to think about when you're learning another language. I think that's a really nice set of examples, actually. Um, and I can try to tie that back into the kind of academic theorizing about all of this, because when we were talking about sociolinguistic variation, so not not the kind of variation where somebody's going to hear a different word um, and the communication is going to break down, but but variation where it's more to do with projecting an identity. Sometimes in social linguistics, people talk about basically performing a style um, and the style that you perform is obviously connected with the speech sounds that you use so different vowel sounds and so on but it's actually bigger than that it's also to do with sometimes things that are that are kind of beyond the spoken language so when you construct a style you know, it can be to do with, you know, your what you choose to wear or how you choose to kind of your body language, how you choose to walk down the street, how you stand and so on. Um, so there is this notion of performing a style of, of, of language use, but also performing a, a kind of identity style as well. So um, here in Spain recently, there's been a lot of talk about a certain TikTok video of... Um, I think she's actually from the US, but she does a series of British accents, regional British accents speaking Spanish. How do British people sound whenever they try to like, hola, 
Hola, me llamo Daniela, soy de Essex y a mí me gusta mucho ir a las discotecas con mis chicas. Hola, me llamo Daniela y soy de Leeds y me gustan mucho las cervezas. Hola, me llamo Daniela y soy de Newcastle. Um, normalmente estoy borracho. Hola, soy Daniela y soy de Escocia. Now, there's been a number of different reactions to this. I mean, first of all, a lot of people find it very funny. Some people in Spain say they all sound exactly the same to me. I can't understand the difference at all. And then, of course, one of the things that I noticed is that more than just pronouncing sounds differently, it seems really that what she's also saying is that British people in Spain like going shopping with their girlfriends and drinking beer all the time, which I'm not sure how true or untrue that is. But what really is going on here? What, what, first of all, why is this so funny? And, and, and what kind of comment... Uh, is the person who made this video trying to make. Yeah, I would like to say something again about this link between, you know, performing an identity and constructing an identity and speech style. So, I mean, in that video, not only is she using different vowel sounds and, and so on, as you say, she's also um, saying some kind of stereotypical things, you know, about the way that British people behave when they're on holiday in Spain. Um, and she's also really performing because her body language, you know, her kind of facial expressions are going along with um, the different accents that she's using. And what I would say is the second point you said that, that some... Spanish speakers say, well, I can't really hear a difference. What's what's the joke here? That joke really works for people who who know about English dialects and English accents, because sociolinguistically, even though she's speaking Spanish, it's triggering all of the kind of social judgments that people make about uh, sometimes quite negative judgments about people from Essex or people from Liverpool or people from Yorkshire and the different varieties that she used there. Um, and so it works because it's it's kind of playing on English speakers' perceptions, even though, you know, she's speaking Spanish. Um, and I guess maybe um, a message is not to um, think that um, a kind of overtly prestigious English accent necessarily means that you're speaking you know, correct or standard Spanish. So if she had used a kind of BBC English received pronunciation style um, performance as one of those, even though some English speakers would say, oh, that's kind of more standard or, you know, it's kind of judged more, more positively in some contexts, it doesn't necessarily follow that the same judgments work in Spanish. You know, you might well have a situation where, yes, your um, your kind of first accent, your native accent might be kind of Geordie style, um, but that's not necessarily going to be an impediment to, you know, communicating well in Spanish. It might not be something that Spanish listeners are going to pick up on. I don't know if uh, to add to that. And you might find that the your your accent in English actually has certain sounds that help you pronounce uh, sounds in other languages. Like I mentioned with that scouse h at the end of cloch uh, before, uh, if you can easily make that sound, you might find it easier to make that sound in other languages. Um, the a stereotype is that 
the the so-called standard way of speaking means that you are somehow linguistically superior and can therefore easily go on to other languages and master their standard. But of course, that's just not true. Um, every, every language has its own challenges and it, it doesn't really matter where your starting point is. You just need to know where is your linguistic journey to get to that destination. Mm. When you talk about this, Luke, I mean, I'm reminded of when I was learning Russian at university and sort of the first two, three weeks of learning Russian, I remember this feeling of my entire mouth hurting, almost like I was actually doing gymnastics with my mouth to try and get my tongue around some of those sounds. One of the sounds, of course, that a lot of people in my group struggled with was exactly that h sound, you know, which in Russian looks a little bit like an X in English, that h. Um, but we were very lucky that one of us in the group actually was from Liverpool, Liam. And whenever anyone struggled with it, the teacher would turn to Liam and say, Liam, say the word chicken. And he'd go, chicken. And she'd say, that is the sound that you need to use in Russian. <laughs> well, maybe we can move the conversation finally, just before we wrap up on to thinking about what our listeners and language learners can do to really improve their accent. As we know, um, Rosetta Stone has fantastic speech recognition technology, which will actually give you immediate feedback on, on whether or not you're pronouncing the word you're learning in the right way. Um, those kinds of things didn't exist when I was learning languages a couple of years ago. It was very much kind of like you either got it or you haven't. But nowadays we've got technology like with Rosetta Stone's speech uh, recognition technology to be able to give us direct feedback. But what other things could people who are learning languages do to get better at the way they speak? Um, so um, I think it's important to think about what sounds don't exist in your native language that do exist in other languages and spend some time with a mirror inside your mouth working out how you make certain sounds so you are increasing the awareness the proprioception how you feel things are moving inside your mouth because that will give you a bit more control um, the other thing is to listen to these new sounds and work out how they sound different from other sounds um, so understanding how your mouth works and perhaps looking up online what the tongue needs to do, if it is the tongue, to create a certain sound. Um, I'm sure that everyone, or lots of Spanish learners are aware that the, the B and the V are pronounced in the same way in Spanish, but that way of pronouncing the B and the V might change depending on the context. And that leads me on to this idea of allophones that we have this, this abstract concept of a phoneme, and this is a, um, a meaningful unit of sound, so it changes the meaning of words. But this might be pronounced in slightly different ways depending on the context. For example, in the word pill, we are adding a bit of air to that P sound, pill, pill. But if we put an S before, spill, lots of people don't add that air. And um, when you're approaching another language, it's useful to be aware that even though you have that character or that letter, it might not always sound exactly the same. So learning pronunciation isn't just about improving your own communication skills, but it's also about understanding how the sound system works so you can understand other people more easily. Um, Yes. Really? <laughs> um, are, there, are there any sounds in particular in the English language that people should look out for as being different in English? I mean, 
I, anyone who studied the international phonetic alphabet, the IPA, will be aware that, for example, the A sound in English, the A, is a bit different to in most other languages, right? Because we actually write that with a sort of A-E together sound when we, when we transcribe sounds from English, whereas in other languages it would just be an A. Is that right? Um, yeah, certainly um, a lot of um, English accents have that kind of ah sound. Um, in some, uh, I was looking uh, a while ago at uh, a, a very old phonetics book from uh, about 100 years ago, which talked about a German ah, as in the word like man or whatever, which is... Um, represented in the phonetic alphabet as like a typewriter letter A, as opposed to that ash symbol, which is an A and E joined together. Um, I guess what it comes down to a lot is, um, and this is quite a difficult thing to do, but it's making these connections between listening to the input that you're getting. So the examples of pronunciation that you're getting and then trying to, um, to focus your pronunciation to kind of reproduce those. But the the complicating thing, this is, this is a, a really difficult thing, this relationship between first language structures, so sound structures, phonology, and second language learning that you're trying to do, is um, not, to be, not to be kind of misled or, or kind of guided by the way things work in your first language. So just because English has this particular distinction between two sounds, it might turn out that in the language you're learning, um, that's not actually an important distinction. Um, and over and above that, and again, this is really difficult to acquire, and this is, this is something that will just come with, with time and, and, um, and you know, experience of trying to use the language, is that the sociolinguistic connotations of particular sounds, particular accent sounds, um, are not going to be the same either. So, you know, you might think that in English, you know, an a vowel and an a vowel kind of signal different things about the background of the speaker and, and what kind of person they are and where they're from. But it might turn out that in the language you're learning, that's not a kind of meaningful distinction at all. You know, so um, you, I guess what you want to avoid is, you know, trying to speak Spanish with a received pronunciation English accent, because that's that's you know, would be quite understandable, but it, that will be very definitely regarded as a kind of non-native speech style. And if you can, if you can listen as carefully as you can and try to, uh, you know, adopt the sounds that you're hearing, you know, that will, will help to, to build your, your Spanish pronunciation, your French pronunciation. And um, it's also useful to be aware of things like stress and tone. So English is a language that has stress. We make a difference between I received a present at Christmas and I am presenting something. So the stress is different, present on the first, present on the second. And some languages like Russian also have stress. So when you're learning a word for the first time, if that language has stress, you need to know where the stress is because it can change the meaning. Not only does it change the meaning, but it might change the vowel sounds that are not stressed. This, of course, happens in English. I don't receive a present at Christmas. I receive a present, zunt. So that vowel sound has been reduced in the unstressed syllable. The same thing happens in Russian, but it's uh, a slightly different way of reducing vowel sounds. Um, and then, of course, there's tone. Tone changes the meaning of words in particular language, in particular languages, whereas it doesn't in English. I 
Absolutely. In some ways, unlearning is more difficult than learning with certain things like this, isn't it? And I'm really glad you mentioned the stress example, because of course, in Greek, my second language, we have a very important example of that, which is what we have the word malaka. Now, if you say, for example, malakatiria, that would mean sort of soft, tender, nice cheeses. But if you move that stress back a syllable to malaka, that's a word that I definitely recommend you don't try using when you're next in Greece. Well, Unfortunately, I would love to stay here speaking about accents and pronunciation all day, but I think we are reaching just about all we have time for today. So Will Barras, Luke Nicholson, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure you've helped out. Uh, uh, I'm sure you've helped out. Uh, why isn't this coming out now? Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. But now you should be armed with all the knowledge you need to start improving your pronunciation. And you should also understand why it's important to think about your accent when learning another language. Primarily, it will ensure that you're understood in the language that you're learning. So look out for sounds that you may not have in your own language and practice them in front of a mirror, looking at the movements of your mouth and tongue. However, accents are also a fantastic way of creating an identity in a new language. So if you want to integrate into a certain community, listen to those nuances and try to replicate them. Much of this will happen subconsciously though, so it's not really something you need to be too worried about. But also don't be afraid to lose your native accent as it will reveal where you come from and make you slightly more unique, which always makes life more exciting. Also, just a reminder to go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast for those special offers on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription. The link is in the episode description, so just click through from there to start your own language learning journey today. Finally, in our last episode on the 20th of May, myself and special guest Susie Dent will be answering your questions on learning another language. So if there's something you'd like to know, just tweet at Rosetta Stone UK for a chance to be selected. Good luck.